times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and we're taking you down a path today to take charge of your happiness. Um, I have a lot of questions about happiness, and I've got the best guy in the whole world that I could talk to about this. Uh, today, I introduce you to Dave Romanelli, who is a wellness innovator and a pioneer. In the early 2000s, he was a catalyst in yoga's rapid growth movement by fusing yoga with mainstream passions. His current focus shines a light on the epidemic of loneliness and irrelevance amongst the elder population. Romanelli brings the elders together with the younger generations through a very creative series of events called Drinks with Your Elders that creates an intergenerational exchange of love, wisdom, and healing connection. His work has been acclaimed in the New York Times, Food and Wine, and the Wall Street Journal. Dave has written two books with his most recent, Happy is the New Healthy, twice reached number one on Amazon's Healthy Living bestseller list. Dave, welcome to Feel Good Naked Radio. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I saw the name of your book. A friend of mine as well sent me a great post from your blog, and we'll let everyone know at the end of the show how to find you and and know more about you on social media. But the thing that I wanted to really unpack with you is just the whole concept of happy, happiness. You know, what is happy? Does someone choose it? Does someone get born it? What is it, you know? Um, And to go deeper with you about what you know, having been 20 plus years in the field of understanding happiness. So let's just open by you giving the listeners some sort of an understanding about whether or not you think happiness is a choice. Well, I mean, there's so much research on it now and so many people talking about it. I mean, there's a, a, a set point uh, where some people wake up and it's easier to be happy and some people wake up and they start in a a place where happiness is a, is a lot farther away. But there are things that we can do each day to turn up the volume on our level of happiness for instance, there was a, a study by the Harvard Business Review that said that happiness comes from frequency of positive experiences rather than intensity of positive experiences. So that means that, you know, if most of the time we work our butts off all day long, we're busy all day long, we get to the end of the day and we're relaxed, we have a stiff drink, we eat a big meal, we pig out, we go into a food coma. That's what you'd call intensity, an intense positive experience. You're more likely to be happy if you have little moments of joy scattered throughout your day. So that's an example of a way that you can feel happier right now. Uh, there's a lot of those types of, of habits that you can install in your life to be 
to be a lot happier. So I know this is an obvious question, but what is happy? Happy is feeling good. Happy is being more of an optimist versus a pessimist. I mean, why is happy so great? <laughs> I, I want to sort of understand it from a philosophical perspective for a moment as to what it really is. Well, I think it's a level of just being engaged in life and savoring that, whether it's the little moments of joy that you have when you're kissing your child or listening to a great song or savoring a piece of chocolate. But it's also about embracing your challenges because your your challenges and your conflicts are how you grow. It's how you build muscle and character. A lot of times the inner dialogue, we're complaining about everything that's not going right in our life. And when you talk about what's not right, you just kind of perpetuate more of what's not right. When you embrace the challenges, you're more likely to grow, to learn from them and to kind of graduate from them and move forward. And, and I think be happier along the way in the midst of whatever you're going through. A lot of times we place conditions in our happiness and we say, I'll be happy when I get over the flu. I'll be happy when my kid gets into school. I'll be happy when I get in better shape. And what happens is those conditions will follow you your whole life. And you'll have this different conditions on your happiness 10 years from now. So at a certain point, you got to make a decision to bust loose from all these conditions and, and decide that in this very moment right now, you're going to embrace your life and be happy. Okay, but let's say there's great heartbreak or great heartache, or let's say that the inevitable bad thing shows up in your life that is truly that. It's not just the negative attitude that keeps perpetuating um, a crappy attitude. It's something really life-changing that's negative. And, And I'd love for you to talk about what people who you've seen who've kind of mastered the idea of being happy or choosing happiness, how they would work with something that really deserves melancholy and upset and fear. And, you know, what, what happens then? Listen, I mean, we've, I've been through that this year. My sister-in-law had, um, had a brain tumor and, and, you know, had to go through chemo and radiation and it's been, you know, they have two small children and it's been a, a lot of worry and sadness and some dark times, no doubt. Um, but at a certain point, you you can't stay there forever. You know, you can't live in the shadows forever. Well, you can live in the shadows forever, but at a certain point, you make a decision that you're going to pick yourself up and move forward. I have a little mantra. I turn from the darkness to the light, to all that's well and all that's right. And you can be melancholy for a while, but my advice is that at a certain point you move forward. And that's where mindfulness is really powerful, that you you learn that you can shift your attention from the darkness to the light. And yet in our society, the tendency is that we fixate on everything that's wrong. We fixate on everything we need. And we let, you know, all the news stories make us worried and fearful and we get stuck there 
And so that's the problem. And I think mindfulness empowers you and teaches you that you can start to pay attention to things that serve you and bring you joy and make you happy. And I think the fear piece is so important. I was with a client yesterday and I was explaining to her that, you know, you can be directed by fear or you can develop an inner trust. And it was interesting to take fear and put on the other side of the room trust because I think the fear ultimately is a lack of trust in yourself, in your circumstances, in your choices, in your dialect. I mean, talk to me a little bit about your concept of where trust belongs in the happy equation. That's a good question. Somebody gave me some really good advice this year, and they said when life doesn't seem to be working out, that she always holds a bigger picture over her life, and she asks, what am I not seeing here? Because there's always a bigger picture. I think when we get stuck in a narrow place, in our lives, in our mind, in our perspective, it becomes scary and fearful. But when you allow yourself to kind of open up, take a deep breath, make some new connections, um, immerse yourself in, in new wisdom, new information, you start to see that there's a bigger picture. One of my favorite quotes by Arthur Schopenhauer, when you look back at your life, it's as if it was composed by a novelist Events that at the time seem of little consequence turn out to become indispensable factors and the composition of a consistent plot. Your whole life gears together like a great big symphony. So it all it always comes together when you look back. And I like this quote that I recently heard thinking more about the trust and the fear and, and what you just shared is that every fear hides a wish. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting because when you look back over your journey and when you look forward and when you're in the present moment, every second has that choice of moving forward with that wish or being stuck in that fear. And that really is trust, is that wish, knowing that you know what you need if you're going to take a more positive approach I love that. I'm, I'm just sitting with that for a second. Every wish, every fear has a wish. Hides a wish. Okay. A- every fear hides a wish. So if, you, if you're being driven by fear, then you're not able to even see the wish or the trust that is right there with the wish. So I do think you mentioned the fear factor, and there's so much to say about that with people's perspective, pessimism, or upset versus the joy, the living with a, a feeling of relaxation. Um, you mentioned slowing down. I mean, all of these things that ultimately make us happier are sidelined by fear. I mean, they're the big bully, as I spoke to my client yesterday, I said, fear is the biggest bully ever. Yeah, you know the acronym for fear. Fear stands for forget everything and run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so true because if you attract what you feel and what you think, which I want to divide those two with you because I have thoughts about the difference between a feeling and a thought. But if you are being driven by fear, you're going to attract more and more fear. And then you're living in such a state of high stress and anxiety that you're reflecting what we see a lot now in the culture and and so many people are being diagnosed with anxiety. Um, The 
guest I had on last week was saying that if you look at every medical condition that is diagnosed, a lot of them are fear-based and anxiety-based and stress-based. So I just don't think we can say enough about the fear being opposite of the happiness. And yet when you're in fear, you need the tools to be able to get out of that state. Yes. I mean, listen, I have anxiety. I totally get it. I've done meditation series on anxiety. I mean, I was anxious this morning. We're moving right now, and I have two kids that are very young, and it's like an extreme sport moving with two young children. And anxiety is just, it's very real. I, I think it's, you know, mostly genetic. So learning that it's part of life, and, you know, it's, it's something that so many millions and millions of people all over the planet are dealing with. You're never alone in dealing with it. That's what I remind myself. So I take a breath and, and, and sit with it and work through it. But, yes, fear is a big issue, no doubt. Take us through what you did this morning with your own anxiety step by step, like how you managed it, how you transformed it. What, what is your current moment and state? compared to that feeling of anxiety that you felt this morning? I think every day has a personality. And I woke up this morning and I always meditate and listen to in something that makes like makes me inspired and allows me to see the world differently. Um, and, then I, and then I meditate. And then I get to work on my own meditations. I record these meditations for this series I'm doing right now called At One At Last. But I got to be honest with you in saying that today has been higher than normal on the anxiety meter. Um, You know, when the kids woke up, my son dropped the coffee grinds all over the floor. And it was just just one of those days where you kind of get that sense or personality of the vibration of the day. And... The older I've gotten, the more, and especially as a parent, you can't, you know, you can't really force that to go away sometimes. Sometimes that's just how the day is and you got, you kind of relax into it and, and work through it. So that's where I'm at. There's still, I still have that little bit of anxiety in my mind, in my heart as we speak right now. And, and if you woke up and it was a five, where would it be right now? Oh, maybe a four. <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah. but that but that's a little bit of an alteration from where you began, which is the mind skills that you use to try to work with where you are. I, I mean, it, med, mindfulness and meditation have been such a game changer yeah. for me, and I think even more potent than yoga. And I think that there's a, a huge stigma, even still with mindfulness, that it's boring. It's I can't sit still. I can't close my eyes. How am I going to do it? But if you have the right guide the right voice to, to get you there, it is so incredibly healing and just allows you to work through thoughts of worry and allows you to realize that you can put your attention where you want to put your attention. But if you don't take control of your mind, somebody else will. That's the big message that I want to share. Oh, that's so true. When when you meditate, what kind of meditation do you do? Is it the same, different? What, do you go with a mantra? Do you go with headspace? What do you do? You know, I love guided meditations. Uh, I'm not like a hardcore meditator. 
I just like listening to guided meditations. Um, my favorite is Stop, Breathe, Think is the app. I love the meditations on there. I love the, the series that Deepak Chopra does. Um, I've done a little bit of Headspace. Um, and I love uh, Jack Cornfield. He's, he's like my maybe my favorite guru. But I just love the idea of listening to someone whisper in my ear, <laughs> everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and here's some positive thinking. Because, you know, it's so easy to wake up and turn on your phone and look at the news stories of like the North Korea and everything that's going on with Trump and all this chaos in the world. And then right from the get-go, you're in a nervous place in your mind and you're behind before the day even started. So by waking up and the first thing you do is you know, listening to something that makes you happy and reminds you that there's a lot of good in the world. There's maybe a lot of negativity and lots to be nervous about, but there's also a lot of good and a lot of people doing a lot of beautiful things. And if that's the first thing you focus on, it's, it's a huge difference in, in quality of life. How long do you meditate in the morning when you start your day? No more than 10 or 15 minutes. But I take the first hour of my day to really to read, to meditate, to listen, to do yoga. I get up really, really early. It's one of the best new habits that I've installed in my life in the last year is that I wake up sometimes 3.30 or 4 a.m. before the kids get up so that I can make sure to get my mind right. You know, usually in our wellness culture, the body is the first thing we get right and but, and the mind is the last thing we get right. And I've really found that you want to get your mind right first before anything else. You, I can be a better parent. I'm more clear as a partner. I'm better in my profession when my mind is in a good place. Yeah, I, I don't think any of us can say enough about that. And a lot of the experts that I've brought on to speak about the definitive idea of embodiment from a physical, mental, and spiritual place we all have been talking about throughout this whole series. So listeners, if you're not grabbing onto this, try it immediately tomorrow morning. The brain is soft in the morning. It's the most receptive, beautiful moment to give it nourishment, mental nourishment, positive thoughts, soothing thoughts, deep breath, slowing down, scanning the body. Create a practice for your morning, even if you're getting up as early as Dave, especially, you know, with kids in the house, that's what I put in my book, too. You have to get up early. You know, you, you might say, oh, I'm too tired, but this is going to fuel you all day long. And what happens is you start, the soft brain is a sponge, and you start each day feeding it with the most hopeful ways to approach the 24 hours that you've got in front of you. And everybody can do that. You know, it may mean getting up earlier, but it's so worth it. So we're saying that this kind of a practice is perhaps even more beneficial than yoga, than than anything that you're trying or have tried that you think is 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 powerful. This is another degree of powerful, but you have to do it. You have to say, I'm going to start my day that way. I'm going to turn the phone off and I'm not going to turn it on until I've done my ritual or my practice. And it is a game changer. There is no question. It is a huge 
huge game changer. And what I love about it is you don't have to be fit. You know, you don't have to be skinny. You don't have to be 20. You don't have to be 100. It's just waking up and creating practice. So thank you for mentioning that because I think it is truly something that everyone must do, can do. Why not? Yes. Um, it's, it's, he- it's installing healthy new habits into your life is really where what we're talking about here. I think, And it takes 66 days to – the science shows – that it takes 66 days to install a new habit. So if you practice something for 66 days, it becomes easier to do than not to do. And that's really, I think, the kicker. When in your own life did you start to become fascinated by happiness and mindfulness and choosing your thoughts? And what was your path to getting into this field? Well, I, you know, I've been in wellness for 20 years. We started yoga studios after college and got really into yoga. And then I kind of shifted into mindfulness. And over those 20 years, you meet a lot of people who seem to have all their ducks in a row, great home, great family, and great career. And a lot of times they're not as happy as you'd think they, sh- they should be. And then I'll meet a lot of people who don't have their ducks in a row and seems like they're living kind of unique, different kind of life, and they find find a way to be happy. So the formula for happiness seemed really elusive to me, and the happiest person that I ever met was when I was living in New York City a few years ago, and it was this lady who inspired a whole book that I wrote called Happy is the New Healthy, and she was 111. She lived to be 111. I met her when she was 108. And you know, a lot of it's rare to find a, someone who's that old. Uh, they're called super centenarians. There's only about 60 out of 7 billion people on the planet who are 110 or older. So when you get to meet one, it's like super special. And, you know, at that point, it's partly genetic to live to be that old, but a lot of it's attitude. Because if, if you're in a bad mood, you're not going to live to be 110. If you're in a bad mood all the time. So there's a certain point where it becomes about attitude and the joie de vivre and the resilience and the sense of humor and this lady had all that and I learned so much wisdom from her about what it really means to live a good life and and, and to be happy and you know so I could tell you a bunch of stories about her if you want to hear them but that was the, the real turning point where I realized this is this is what happiness really is is this lady right here it's not about having a huge house and all the accoutrements and you know, the, the track record and the career success, because where does that get you when you're older? Or you look back on your life and, I mean, are you going to say to people, I had a great life because I had all these accoutrements? You know, or you say to people, I had a good life because I overcame these challenges and I have all these great stories to share and I can laugh through the, the difficult times and I can celebrate the good times. And that's what I learned from this lady. Is this Catherine you're referring to? Yes. Okay, because I was reviewing all of the work you've done, and I loved reading about her story with what you wrote, but I also noted that you said she was inherently trusting. You know, a lot of old, I mean, I've done a good amount of work with old people now, and a lot of times they're very nervous or hesitant. And when I remember the first time I met her, I walked in the room with a social worker, and she had her arms in the air, like, signaling touchdown, like, she was so happy 
for there to be an, a new visitor, a new person she could meet. And she wasn't inherently trusting. That's the vibe that I got from her, which is not usually the vibe you get from a very old person. Well, or and a I, young person, for that matter. Well, so that goes back to trust being on the opposite side of fear. Like, that is the other part that you can access is the trust versus the fear. Definitely. And there's a mantra that I love. My friends have this clothing company called Spiritual Gangster, and they have these shirts that say, trust your journey. And I think that's so powerful to just understand that to even be grateful for your struggles. Paulo Coelho says that your struggles prepare your spirit and your will. And to even be grateful for the, the total crazy headaches that you've got going on in your life right now. That's part of trust. It really is. Trust is not necessarily always comfortable, but it's necessary. Yeah, it's important to learn. I mean, that's what I learned from my years with yoga is to understand that discomfort is part of life and you can breathe through discomfort or you can react to it and when you react to things that make you uncomfortable it just is harder to navigate but in the midst of discomfort if you can take a breath and observe it and acknowledge it and look at it it's it's much easier to work through it it goes away much more quickly the challenge to the discomfort i think though now is that because of social media and because of the ways that we're all dialed in, there is an inherent comparative mindset that people get really hooked into without even knowing it. And so then there is this compulsion to go look on the web, look on the web, look on the phone, look at the Instagram, whatever it is. And there is a feeling of discomfort that's going through the body, but the brain isn't quite pushing it away or letting it realizing that this behavior is making me feel bad. So you keep doing it. And then what I find so interesting is the awareness of that, the discomfort that is perpetuating and growing and building and intensifying and activating. That's a choice. You know, a a lot of people I know are taking July off from social media just to see what is their equilibrium like after getting out of that kind of comparative thought process, which can really dull your own wise, trusting thought. It dulls that and it also dulls your, you know, what it means to be a human being because the greatest moments and memories that we have are always associated with sense perception. And if you look back on a great memory from the 4th of July, there's, it's not going to be like, oh, my God, do you remember that amazing Instagram photo that we took? You know, it'll be about the smells and the touches and the tastes and the sounds. And yet all of our experiences now are focused on digital videos and, and photographs and sharing them and getting likes. And that's not memorable. So it's really important to recognize that it's a completely unsustainable pattern that we're, most of us, myself included, are all kind of wrapped up in is, is this social media frenzy. And we're going through entire days without any real human memories or experiences. So, I mean, at some point, you got to peel yourself away from it because the tech world just wants to f- completely immerse us in that culture. And, you know, you, you can go put your head on the pillow now and not have a single memory from the day gone by. Ooh. And, 
so creepy. It's true, though, and it's it's sort of sad. It's and, so sad. And it's not – a lot of times social media is not real. It's just people portraying only the good in their life. And there's something beautiful and fun about that, and it's fun to see people's babies and, you know, they're doing headstands on the beach on their vacation and all that stuff. But I, I think it, it ultimately is not real. And some – you know, what makes us closer – is vulnerability uh, actually? I mean, vulnerability releases oxytocin in the brain of the person who shares their vulnerability and the person who's listening. So it mm-hmm. makes you closer when you are vulnerable. And that's most of the time we're not using social media to express our vulnerability. Sometimes, but most of the time it's not. It's aspirational. And so, yes, it's completely unsustainable. And at a certain point, we've got to disrupt it. And that's up to every individual to do it. Yeah, and to find a balance beam, you know, so you give yourself this many moments in the day to do it, but then you break away from it when you hit that timer. And it's like, okay, now you got to go do something outside, turn it off, leave it at home, get in the bath, do something that shifts that mentality. Dave, do you think um, one of the things I've been studying the last couple of years, I find this very interesting, is what comes first, the feeling or the thought? Um, And I've been really noting that where I've been getting great results with my clients is helping them to really tune into what they're feeling. And we all know that that body messenger is a great way to feel. And then the thought is almost simultaneous with the feeling, but I believe it's just a few decimeters later. Uh, What what would you say about that? Feeling, thought, similar, dissimilar, which comes first? Well, I know that when you can make people feel something, they're much more likely to be moved to action versus when you make them think something. So when you're in that sort of visceral, emotional space, um, in as a business person, as a presenter, as a parent, when you can make people feel, when they when you have a feeling, when people feel your presence, they feel the energy of your ideas, you're much more powerful than if you're, it's just solely an intellectual exercise. Um, so I know that when I can make people feel something through my writing, you know, when I'm writing a blog and it's, it's emotional, it's more powerful than when I'm trying to like explain an intellectual concept. I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but, but emotions are much more powerful than thoughts. And do you believe that one propels the other, like that you feel something, think something like, you know what I mean? Like what, what comes first, the feeling or the thought? Well, I think there's when thoughts are not connected to feelings, they tend not to stick or not to be as impactful. But when they go hand in hand, it's it's you know, it's much more powerful when thoughts and feelings are connected. Sort of like when the mind is separate from the body, which is a huge problem. You know, a lot of times people, their mind is is one place and their body's somewhere completely different. Like, you know, your body's working out at the, on the treadmill at the gym, but your mind is at the office worrying about work. Mm. And that's when we, the sort of the root cause of a lot of disease or illness. Or and injuries we, on yeah. the treadmill injuries. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. When our mind and body are connected, we're much more powerful as, as human beings. 
So I think that what sort of touches on what you're saying, that when your thoughts and feelings are aligned, you can really make an impact. And I think that gets back to the vulnerability and the ability to feel. So, you know, if you're a social media addict, you're probably not feeling a whole lot. Um, So I think one of the great ways that I work with individuals is to help them really tune into the feelings that are often blocked, I think, by the thoughts. Definitely. Um, Too much thinking, way too much thinking and analyzing and worrying and it disconnects us from our ability to intuit and to ask ourselves, you know the basic question how does this make me feel and if it doesn't make you feel good that means something or it used to mean something and it should mean something yeah or if it creates contraction which i think is a messenger that may not be Listen to deeply enough because contraction and tightness can often signal an important message. Yeah, I mean, we've got to pay attention to our bodies. You know, I mean, all these illnesses that we have. I mean, if you've ever looked at Carolyn Mace and her, she has a whole um, index for every illness, everything that's going on in your body is related to a deeper cause in your life and it's almost always it's an aha moment when you when you look at her index and it makes perfect sense but we don't live in that way it's just the symptom you go to the doctor they give you medicine and it's not getting to the root of what makes you happy and what makes you feel most alive and what makes you feel most real you know there's one of my favorite quotes is relaxation is who, uh, no, tension is who you think you should be and relaxation is who you are. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll say. In fact, you'll, you'll appreciate this as a very physical man. I was a very aggressive um, bodybuilder and was almost in the competitive realm. And I, and I kept using the principles of bodybuilding throughout my mid-30s. And when I really got in touch with feelings and vulnerability I noted that I couldn't feel it in my 12 pack like my 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 tight 12 pack muscles in my stomach were keeping me from feeling that part of my body and that was the first time I related the idea that all that bodybuilding and all of those weights and that 12 pack was not really embodied with my spiritual vulnerable, emotional, feeling self. And so it's been so important to me to redesign the way I now move my body so that I don't close off that artery to my emotions through that tight, tight, tight muscle. <laughs> yeah, it that was makes imp- a lot of sense. The 12-pack was impressive, however, <laughs> but it was egoically so, and it was keeping me from some very important message within the heart. Um, and I did not connect that till my 30s, that, that, that the 12-pack was a wall, literally, around that part of me. So it's kind of interesting to think about with respect to the body. You know, it's funny because everything is a rental, even your body. Yeah. So you have to give everything back. And we put so much time into, like, decorating our bodies and with muscles and tone and decorating our homes and you know, accumulating stuff. And 
I have this analogy that it's like if you went to the Four Seasons in Hawaii and you spent the whole week of your vacation redecorating your hotel room, you know, that would make no sense, right? You go to Hawaii to have to experience Hawaii. And, you know, we come to Earth and as spirits in, in these bodies and we spend, we get stuck kind of like decorating the body and the home and we forget to have like the rich experience of life. And I think that's a real common um, seduction for people is that we forget to enjoy the journey. And that's where I think coming back to happiness, where we lose touch with, with happiness is when we get seduced by all these things that we want to have and these, and we forget to like, just, you know, enjoy the journey. Well, and I'm sure with these super centenarians that you've shared time with, that message is super important to not forget before we reach that age where we're a hundred plus, you know, to, to figure that out now. Absolutely. But you've learned a lot then, and they're not, not all the old people, the elders are, are like that. You know, a lot of them are, have a lot of issues with their lives and they'll, one guy I recently spoke to, he's 98 and he has, you know, he's estranged from his children. He hadn't seen, he just saw his daughter for the first time in 60 years. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you, I learned a lot from listening to him about the importance of cultivating relationships when you're younger so that when you're in your older age, that you're surrounded by people who love you. Because mm. if you're too focused on work and, success and you don't have enough time kind of nurturing the garden of love in your life and cultivating your relationships and you become very lonely in your old age and so you learn a lot from those stories almost as much as you learn from you know the the positive stories but it's really really powerful to speak to people who are in their twilight their very old age because they can look back at life and tell you a lot, you know, we, we place such an emphasis now on wisdom and the yoga culture and the self-help culture and, you know, everything that Oprah has done. But the real wisdom is from the old people who have been through so much and have so much to share. It's not always happy wisdom. Sometimes it's sad wisdom. It's painful wisdom, but it's important to hear it. Well, I was struck by Catherine's Great tips were sex, vodka, and spicy food. <laughs> Those are her three secrets. When you ask, well, how did you get to be 110? Like, what are your health tips? And, you know, she didn't say gluten-free or low-carb. <laughs> you know, I didn't do the tri- triathlons and marathons. She said it was sex, vodka, and spicy food. But it's interesting because a lot of the people who live to be very old, they have that joie de vivre, mm-hmm. that ability to, to enjoy life to enjoy the journey and you know at the end of the day like when you put your head on the pillow at night you want to be able to say like I had a I really cherished life today I enjoyed it and it's not like I got a bunch of work done and I had an awesome Instagram photo with a ton of likes and I'm really feeling my popularity grow because where does that get you you know it's about like I had a long beautiful hug with my child and I went swimming and the summer sun felt so good and I just cherished it. And I went for a long walk. Whatever it is that makes you feel alive, the joy of life, the joie de vivre, is integral to happiness. 
And I think that's a really neat exercise to also offer the listeners. We've we've talked about how to start the day, and I do think there's really beautiful value in ending the day with that kind of idea of just reviewing all those precious moments in that day and giving that mindful moment to those one or two or, if you're blessed, three things that day that were truly embodied and you were there for them and you experienced them. And then that memory that you mentioned is set from that day in a grateful way before falling off to sleep. I love that idea. Actually, I, I use it and I think it's a great one. Yeah, here's a tool for you from my first book. It was, I call it the BFD mantra. And it's a beautiful, funny and delicious moment each day keeps the stress away. So if you every day it kind of made a mental checklist that you had a beautiful moment, a sunset, you know, look at the starry sky, take a walk in the sunshine, a funny moment where you allowed yourself to not take life so seriously and loosen your grip and laugh, and a delicious moment where you just took a little bit longer to savor a glass of wine or, you know, a bite of food. And it's a, if you have children, it's a really, really great conversation to have at dinner every night. Like, what was your beautiful, funny, and delicious moments of the day and go around the table. And it's a way to kind of add a process to capturing moments. I used used to love doing that with my kids when they were younger because the answers were so funny. You know, if I, I would say, tell me something that was really memorable today. And (laughs) there were certain ages where the answers were just priceless. I wish so much I had written them down. Um, And I do love that ritual with children at a table because it gives them that skill to reflect and to understand the value of memory and then to use their voice to explain it. And that's a great tool when they're little. Yes. Yeah. Yes, for sure. What were you just going to say? I was going to say this morning, you know, I, it's, I don't have, I'm not able to really totally do that yet because my my, I, my son is two and a half and my daughter six months, so we can't really get into oh, that yet. Wow. Oh, wow. We talked today about what's, what are you grateful for? And I said it and, and my wife said it and, you know, I think my son absorbed it and listened to it and it kind of shifted the dialogue from a kind of an anxiety ridden morning to like, okay, but... I'm grateful for the delicious breakfast that mommy made me and I'm grateful for my wife and I'm grateful that it's sunshine out and it, it just changes the kind of the tone in the room. And if kids don't understand, you know, at an intellectual level, like what you're grateful for, they, they can feel that mommy and daddy are less anxious now and they're talking about something that's, that feels good. So that's where you know, gratitude, you've heard so much about gratitude, but it's, so powerful and one of the um one of my friends who i think is the single most successful friend i have from the sense that he's grown so much in the last few years you kind of stall out sometimes when you're in your 40s i'm 44 and you stall out right and one friend i know keeps growing and growing by leaps and bounds and i think his secret is is gratitude i mean he's always grateful for what he's got in the moment. And when you are grateful for what you have, you attract more of it. When you're not grateful for what you have, it's t- it usually is taken away from you. So that's uh, something that I wanna make sure to teach my, my children. 
And I didn't know your kids were that young. You do oh have you do have little ones, and yeah. you're moving. Oh my gosh! And your anxiety is only a four. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I want you to. Uh, you had mentioned in some of your literature that you can use one minute to uh, turn up the volume on your level of happiness. And I thought that would be something neat to share with listeners. Like, give us something that we can do in one minute to turn up the volume, please. Okay, well, um, well, when I was living in New York City, I went around New York City with a film crew, and we did this social experiment where I got to wrap my arms around you and have a one-minute hug and see how, <laughs> how that was. And it was super awkward. <laughs> because you know, we're very touch sensitive. America is super touch sensitive. If you were in Starbucks and there was a stressed out person in front of you in line and you just gave them a little shoulder rub, like that would be really, really weird. <laughs> and there was this um, psychologist who went all over the world and sat in cafes and observed how much touch there was. And so uh, England the two people sitting in a cafe didn't touch each other a single time over the course of an hour. In America, two people only touched each other once or twice. The highest in the world was Puerto Rico, where people yeah. touched each other like 180 times in an hour. You know, and we just don't have a lot of touch in our culture. So just the slightest physical contact is so powerful. I mean, if you can have a one-minute hug, it never lasts a minute because it's so awkward. But just a little bit longer of an embrace with someone you love will, will be so powerful and so unforgettable. You know, babies need touch to survive and adults need touch to thrive. So um, a little bit of physical contact is just is rare. And I mean, it feels so good when you get loving touch, you know, so we need more touch. But if you don't, if you're not going to do that, you can take one minute in your day to, there's 1,440 minutes in a day. And if you just dedicated one minute each day to sending a silent blessing to someone, you know, telling, thinking of someone, praying for someone, picking up the phone, telling someone random how much you care about them, sending a loving email, it's just, it's so obvious, but a lot of days go by where we don't do, we don't have that minute that's dedicated to love. Uh, and it doesn't take a lot of effort. It doesn't, a minute is not a lot of time but it can have a really important impact. And would you say that if you share the love, it gets back to the idea that you mentioned early on that you're then attracting what you're sharing, you're attracting what you're thinking and giving out? Yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, you're going to be more successful when you do that. If you're in in life and in business, there's this research that shows that you're, when you're likable, people want to hang out with you and they want to do business with you. They want to be around you. When you're nervous and anxious, it's like you know, nobody wants to be around that person. So if you're more loving, then chances are, you know, your people are going to want to, life is going to start to turn more in your favor. Um, Maya Angelou has a famous quote that people never remember what you say. They never remember what you do, but they always remember how you made them feel. And you, you think back on the people in your life who made you feel good. And those are people you want to be around. You want to work with. You want to help out when they need help. 
And you mentioned the inspiration of Jack Kornfeld. What what's the main thing you've learned from him? He's an old old time. Yes, I old, I know. Yeah. So, but but what has he taught you? Like where where what lesson have you? What do you think of when you think of him as one of your great teachers? He's got so many great stories, and I think like it's one thing to give a bunch of information to people and a bunch of wisdom and teach them how to meditate. And it's another thing to ground it in story because it allows you to understand how to put it into practice. You know, in my my many years in the yoga world as a teacher and an entrepreneur, et cetera, there's a lot of people who have like amazing yoga practices and they can do handstands and crazy twisting poses. And, you know, but when you see them in the parking lot freaking out because somebody cut them off in traffic, like, how successful is their yoga, you know, and it's not really successful until you can integrate what you're learning on the mat into the fury of everyday life. So he tells all these stories that for me are lessons on, okay, here's how you put meditation and yoga into practice. And that's what I think makes a real yogi, a real Jedi, whatever you call it, is who you are in the heat of the battle. Well, and I think the wisdom that he puts into the world, Jack Cornfield, for anyone who's listening, um, K. Cornfield, um, I think what he does is he teaches us that the journey is never ending and that with the journey, there are adjustments that can be made at any moment that we choose to. Yes, um, change is constant. I mean, you never, it never goes away. One, one elder taught me that I think he was 89 and he's still working and he calls himself a change agent. And somebody in the audience says, does change go away when you're older? Because it's so intense when I'm at this stage in my life. And I, I'm hoping that it doesn't, it's not as much of an issue when I'm older. And he says, it never goes away. Things are always changing. Change is everything. And so at a certain point, you have to stop resisting change and start embracing it and even even relishing it. I think you can tell how old of a soul someone is by their their taste for uncertainty. Mm. If uncertainty makes you crazy nervous, you know, it's generally kind of a new soul. But if you can learn to kind of develop a taste for uncertainty, it taps into the older soul, which exists, I think, in everybody. So that's why I believe what, what you're touching on, like the journey is never ending, change is constant. You never can be sure what's going to happen from moment to moment. I mean, Jack Cornfield says it's, you know, talking about trust, you go to sleep every night. Who's to say you're going to wake up the next morning, right? You just trust naturally that your body's going to function through the night and you'll wake up and you'll be okay. Not everybody does wake up, right? So that's his example of trust. Well, and that does get us right back to the very beginning of our time when you said, you know, don't wait till you get the raise to be happy. It's not about losing the weight and then you'll be happy. It's, it's, it's about right now, right now. And as now is now, adjustments is needed, but to be awake and aware that that's your choice. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of old people that aren't like the 111-year-old, and they're, they're still worried about something that 
how they're going to pay their bills tomorrow. And there's a lot of old people who are really resentful about things that didn't go their way, you know, when they're younger. And if you're worried when you're 37, you're going to be really worried when you're 47. And if you're a little bit resentful when you're 46, you're going to be really resentful when you're 86. So at a certain point, you got to stop and bust loose from all these conditions that we place on our happiness and our life and just make the decision to embrace exactly where you're at this moment. Oh, such a great message, Dave. Tell all of our listeners how to find you. Spell your name, please, and give up the digits so people can find you. Uh, my website's yadave.com, Y-E-A-H-D-A-V-E, like yay Dave, yadave.com. And my name's Dave Romanelli, R-O-M-A-N-E-L-L-I. Uh, all my speaking of social media, I'm not saying that I'm not <laughs> on it, but I <laughs> use it within reason, but it's always at yeah Dave. Um, it's my social media tag. And I have a couple books. I have uh, meditation programs you can find on my website. And I uh, hope to hear from you, hope to, to stay in touch. These have been really wonderful tools, by the way. I want to thank you because I think ultimately the most simple messages are the most powerful. And um, a lot of people are thinking too hard about what is right there in front of them. And I love the ways you reminded us all to just think about right this moment what's happening and then making the choices that are right there to make to be a happier person and that really happiness is a choice i think we did define that that is the truth it is a choice yeah it's a choice you make every day when you wake up it's a choice you make what you're going to pay attention to it's a choice you make if you're thinking of something that's bringing you down that you can decide to think of something that lifts you up and Everything's a choice. And that brings our tagline to a close, which is that you complete you. Thank you, Dave Romanelli. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. We'll be right back.